Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. You're listening to Interval Drinks, the podcast where current RSC artists talk to those who inspire them. Each week, a different creative from the RSE speaks to another artist about their secret interval rituals, fascinating personal stories, and the big questions facing artists today. Getting a tough hide makes you less soft. I don't want to be less soft. I, I want to be vulnerable. You know, that makes me a better artist. It was like climbing a mountain. It felt like I had to get my spear out. I felt like Boudicca climbing up a mountain with this spear and just going, we can do this. There's just an invitation going out to an audience to think these things are different to what they are. Meeting in the bar this week is writer Nina Siegel with writer and theatre maker Tim Crouch. Welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company podcast in which we talk to artists who inspire us. My name is Nina Siegel. I'm a writer currently in rehearsal with the RSC on a new play called O Island which will be part of the 2022 Mischief Festival. I'm speaking today with Tim Crouch, a writer, director and performer who has most recently been in Edinburgh with a new show, Truth's a Dog, Muster Kennel, and whose previous works include Total Immediate Collective Imminent Terrestrial Salvation, Beginners, Adler and Gibb, The Author, An Oak Tree and My Arm. Tim has also created a number of Shakespeare reimaginings, including I Marvolio, I Peas Blossom, I Caliban and I Banco as well as the aforementioned Truth to Dog Master Kennel, which takes place within an imagined performance of King Lear. For the RSC, Tim has edited and directed a First Encounters production of King Lear and written and directed I, Sinner the Poet, a one-poet view of Julius Caesar. Tim also created and co-wrote the BBC Two television series Don't Forget the Driver. Tim's work is playful, joyful, questioning, and at some points almost impossible to stomach. As a writer, Tim is constantly questioning the form what theatre is, what performances, and what it means to make it or to watch it. As a performer and director, he holds the people in the room, whether the other actors or the audience members, with great care and thoughtfulness. As a person, he seems like a great choice to spend an interval drink with. So, welcome, Tim. And imagining that we're in an interval, what is your drink of choice? Great question, Nina. Well, look, yesterday I went online to the Globe Theatre's website to buy a ticket for um, I, Joan. And what popped up was an opportunity to pre-order drinks. And I saw on the Globe website that I could order either a honey and mango margarita for £9.50 or a Negroni for £9.50. The Negroni is 100 mil. Uh, I think I would go for the Negroni 100 mil. I probably won't do it at the Globe. Thanks, Globe. But uh, I have to say a good Negroni is my interval drink of choice. So you didn't go for this on the Globe's offer? No, it's great that it's got it. What else can you get? Hang on, I've got the website up. You can get some Rose de Loire. You can get a bottle of that. Oh, 500 milliliters, that's nearly a bottle. You can get some Pims for 750 Um, a Prosecco, obviously, for a tenner. But no, I'm, I've bought a £5 ticket in the pit. That's where I'm going to stand, and I'm going to see I, Joan by Charlie Josephine, and I'm really looking forward to that. Tim, you are basically doing a scene from your new show, right? <laughs> <laughs> so in... Tim's most recent Edinburgh show. There is a scene, right, where you list various yeah. interval drinks. <laughs> I don't only do that. I don't get the wrong impression. <laughs> I do some of that. That does happen. I narrate an interval to some degree, but the interval sequence in that play comes after a rather, well, heavy duty, I suppose. It's kind of, there are some stand-up routines, and the stand-up routine that's just gone before uh, the interval is one that 
Yeah, that asks some pretty complex questions around, you know, what are we doing here? And and is live theatre still viable after the pandemic? I, don't, I never mentioned the pandemic, but a, a sense of something having quite profoundly broken in the last two and a half years. Mm. Uh, and what do we do in response to that? I wanted to ask kind of how you normally feel about intervals. Obviously, the interval you're describing in that piece is a slight, is a fictionalised interval in a fictional show with a fictional character that you're playing. How do you yourself feel about intervals and being someone who performs and writes and directs, do you feel differently about intervals? I have questions around the whole experience of theatre going, I suppose. So it's not just the play, it's not just the actors on stage interacting with each other, but it's also the the architecture, the the social aspect, the, how a group of human beings uh, is treated. So in Adler and Gibb, um, Adler and Gibb is about two conceptual artists uh, in the last century, Janet Adler and Mark Gibb, and um, there is a student by the side of the stage who charts the process of their lives and their work. And in 1992, Adler and Gibb organised... Um, Adler and Gibb, by the way, do not exist. They are entirely fictional. Um, they made a series of what they called unevents, took the form of letting go, a request made to a particular community to, and I quote, open all the doors, sanction the relaxed gaze, move at half pace, speak at half voice, to stop for 15 minutes, to see to nature, to record nothing of the moment, but to let it pass into forgetfulness, a collective release, a pause between knowledge and action, an intermission, end quote. And then the student in the play says, wouldn't it be cool if we tried that now? So then the intermission, the interval of Adler and Gibb, is, is framed as an artwork by Adler and Gibb and there are some stage directions to that interval um, the interval it says the doors to the theatre are opened a relaxed affair open and playful no one needs leave unless they want to so there are children and actors the actors and children may stay on the stage the dog will be petted so just before the interval a real dog has been brought on stage <laughs> biscuits and squash and cups of tea for those on stage the set will be developed trips to the bar toilet for those in the audience the actor playing Sam who's one of the characters will finesse the wound on his arm so Sam is a character who got wounded in the first half and will die in the second then it says during the latter half of the interval the children slowly start to bring spades of earth or sand onto the downstage area until it begins to form a barrow which is a fancy word for a, a grave and the beginning of act, the second half of Adler and Gibb is uh, about two characters digging up the body of Janet Adler so so this is my that that is a response to my equivocation around um, around intervals. It's complex, isn't it? When things stop, I often think, think when things stop in plays, they are the most exciting moments in plays. One needs to be conscious of it stopping. Mm. And so when things stop unconsciously, uh, I mean, because of a received pattern, I'm always, I'm always a little bewildered by that. So, for example, often plays will have blackouts. And in a blackout, I always wonder where I, as an audience member, am. Where am I now? Mm. What, do you do? what do you want me to do? Do you want me not to exist at that moment? Whilst there is the sound of sort of shuffled feet and scenery being moved, what am I? What am I? So I don't normally have blackouts. Things will happen in plain sight, and an audience's gaze at all times is kind of... Uh, prioritised, I suppose. And so when when an interval happens, when there is a, a conscious sort of break from action for whatever, 20, 15 minutes, then I would like to think that something of the play is still continuing throughout that time. Yeah, I've never made a work long enough to need an interval. No. Um, although I guess th that is coming up, I guess, at some point relatively soon. But there's, I've always been slightly 
mm, wary of them if the play doesn't require it. But I also think there's something, there's a real difference, isn't there, between stopping a play in order to sell ice creams and stopping a play in order for everyone to go to the bathroom. Like, I think that is, it's a really nice space to let people be human. And also stopping a play to enable people to have a little think. Yeah. <laughs> Which perhaps is the priority for me in an interval, as well as having a pee. That's super important, obviously. And seeing to nature is the line in Adler and Gibbs. See to nature, mm. obviously. Um, but if it is just a means to sell, you know, £9.50 honey and mango margaritas, but if that's kind of one of the reasons. And I have sometimes heard theatres go, it would be great to have an interval because we actually make quite a lot of money in our intervals. And I, my heart breaks a little at mm. that, but I also I understand, absolutely understand the forces, the market forces, but that there should be some consideration for the play and what happens when you sort of rend it in that way. Yeah, when you take it out, how it, how it continues, like you say, in that space. Yeah. Brilliant. And I, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, the fact that you perform in pieces that you write and you direct them as well do you sort of split yourself up between that like once you take on a, once you start performing are you still changing the text do you feel the freedom to change the text or do you feel like a writer who is myself has set this text now yeah it's funny often in rehearsal we'll say let's talk to the writer this evening um <laughs> and we'll make up a kind of imaginary phone call um the, the actor would like to know what the writer means by this sentence um so it varies greatly, Nina, depending on, you know, I don't, if I put myself in the plays, there's usually a reason why I put myself in the plays. So there's a play you mentioned, the author, where I play a character called Tim Crouch. Obviously, there's a reason why I'm in that. And it felt important that I was playing that, that the writer was responsibly present in that play. Uh, similarly with Terrestrial Salvation, that play with the long title at the National Theatre of Scotland, that was... Uh, that was kind of really important because that's about a leader of a cult who's written a book and everyone in the space during the play reads from the book, uh, which is, you know, on one level, just what happens in a play anyway. But I needed to be that needed to be sort of I needed to be visibly present in that dynamic. With, uh, so they're, they're always tightly scripted, I think. Um, there are some plays, my solo, I'm Alvolio, I, I meant to not improvise, but not a performance goes by without, <laughs> without something going off the rails. And there's a great pleasure in going off the rails with that play because the form of it allow, allows it. Uh, with Truth to Dog, Muster Kennel, it's written for me to perform. Uh, and it's a very tight piece of writing as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and I, and I honour the writer by trying to get the lines right. And I don't improvise and I don't veer off. Um, there is a very kind of concrete kind of structure to the play. Um, it makes it a little easier if I'm if it's a solo show and I've written it, it makes the rehearsal process a little easier because I'm not having to sort of induce anyone else <laughs> into the process. I work with two co-directors who have been alongside my work since 2004, um, who are kind of part of a certain strand of my work. And Truth to Dog Muster Kennel is part of that strand. So Carl James and Andy Smith work alongside me with that work. Uh, and we didn't rehearse Truth to Dog Muster Kennel hugely. Uh, we had some work in progress earlier this year, which enabled me to think about things. I then completed a script 
we had a week in June uh, where we sat around the table and we brought in Pippa Murphy, who was the composer. And then we had five days, really, with the finished script in the run-up to the first preview in Edinburgh. Wow. Uh, just, just to give me clarity about what I needed to do. Because when I write a play, I'm... Uh, I'm I'm writing into the idea of uh, space and time and form and those other dimensions really. I'm I'm not just writing characters talking to characters or fiction talking to fiction. I'm talking I'm writing into the relationship in the room. I'm writing into the relationship with an audience. We always bring observers into the room. We always bring people. We do runs in front of audiences. So in those five days, we had two run-throughs in front of invited audiences, which gives me a chance to exercise what's happening with the audience. Um, but yeah, I, I write imagining how it will be in performance. I don't think I write plays where I go, I have no idea how this play should be done. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hand it over to this director and I hope that they'll work it out for me because I was visited by this thing. I, I'm not that kind of... I don't get visited by the plays. I, I, I write because I want to uh, make pieces of theatre and so I'm kind of conceiving the theatre as much as I'm conceiving the play. So do you write quite methodically, like knowing the end point that you're getting towards or do you start with a... I guess, the que do you start with a question or do you start with an answer to that question? Uh, ideally, never an answer. Uh, I mean, never an answer, even once the show has toured for years, still no yeah. answer. Um, <laughs> so questions always. Uh, there are, it varies again. One play, like the author, I knew the ending before I'd written anything else. Uh, with Truth's a Dog, Muster Kennel, I knew there had to be a jo joke about a penguin. Um, I knew there had to be a joke about a penguin because earlier there's a joke about a joke about a penguin and I need to sort of resolve that. So I knew that had to happen. And, and I'm also, I knew that, that's, that the focus of the play would shift out of King Lear and into the audience watching King Lear. And so I know there was an ending. There was an ending for a particular audience member and there was an ending for, of course, uh, for the play King Lear. So I kind of knew where I was headed with that. And I'm helped slightly when I, when I approach a Shakespeare play because I... I you know, Shakespeare has done that beginning and middle and end, uh, mm. which I can, you know, use or choose not to use, but it's always there. So Adler and Gibb took years and years of sort of working through form, working through story, and only in the last year, which seems quite a long time, but for me it wasn't, it was quite new, quite near to the performance of it. Only in the last year did I know it would end in a film, so that play ends in a sequence of film, uh, because it's about trying to... Uh, sort of connect the thoughts and connect the narrative as well, connect the form and the narrative. Uh, and that can be a right old mental dance at times. Um, every, everyone is different. The, the play that I wrote first, My Arm, I wrote it in five days. That play was the first thing I ever wrote and nothing will ever be as simple as that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I had nothing to base it on, you know, it was just, it just came out of nowhere. And now every play subsequent to that one has, has a relationship with the previous one and so on. Um, you know, and pushes, I suppose, some, some arguments or some thoughts further. I wanted I wanted to ask about how you started writing because you began as an actor, right? Yeah, as a divisor actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as in I was in a company out of university that devised work, and I was one of seven in a co-op uh, who we we got together. We had endless meetings on Sunday afternoons, and we 
you know, someone would propose an idea, we would vote on it, we would then book a tour and print a poster, and then we'd make the show. And for sort of seven years, that was it. I was an actor in that process. Sometimes I was also a crisis manager when the company struggled through lack of funding and stuff. And only then towards the end of my 20s, I went to drama school. And then there was a relatively short period of my life where I could probably call myself an actor, um, which was after I left drama school and I had an agent and I waited for the phone to ring. And it was all those unique, you know, iniquitous aspects of being an actor that I experienced that kind of prompted me to start writing, to sort of lift mm -hmm. me out of that place because I didn't find it a very happy place. I've read... Uh an interview where you said, I have an accidental career as a writer. I started writing in order to make the theatre I wanted to see and to stop me moaning about the theatre I didn't want to see. Yeah, I think that's about right. You know, sometimes, uh, I, I mean, I feel extremely fortunate to have for the last 20 years almost. Yeah, for the last 20 years, I have mostly made my own work. Uh, this wonderful uh, diversion into uh, the RSC, which happened uh, 10 years ago, with the first thing was The Taming of the Shrew that I did. Anyway, I directed that, then I did A King Lear, and then I wrote I, Sinner the Poet, uh, which was another one of the Shakespeare pieces. Um, but by and large, for the last 20 years, I have just been able to dream, think, write, produce, <laughs> and sometimes dream, think, write, uh, perform produce uh but work that's kind of been generated from inside my noggin um and i think i would always preference that over uh producing or acting in work from somebody else's noggin how great mm. that no matter how great that noggin might be because i uh, you know i'm i've been able in the 20 years to sort of keep carving into a block of stone and find new things in it it's still the same block of stone i still feel like that the the plays when they come they're very different uh but they're still um returning to some issues that i have that i continue to have so you know i'm lucky enough to have had an idea i suppose um mm. and to keep returning to that idea but yeah writing to make plays that I think challenged what I felt as an actor was an overemphasis on the actor's process. And I wanted to ask as well about um, writing for television. Because obviously when you, the work that you do for theatre feels so connected to theatre, it feels so connected to the audience and questioning the form and people being gathered together in a space. Do you find it different writing for television? I mean, I've only had one full experience of it with the series that I co-wrote with Toby Jones. Uh, it's a very different process, Nina. It's such a different process. Uh, so much of it is narrative-driven, character-driven, plot-driven uh, in television. Uh, in theatre, you're writing into an idea of a live gathering and what's happening in that live gathering, what's happening in the, to the people in, on the other side of the stage as well as the people on the stage. Um, so there is a whole other consideration. It's profoundly different. And then with, with telly, what happens is you nail down storytelling beats, I suppose. You know, that, that language does hold true to my experience of it. Um, and then you have this weird experience as a writer is you then hand it over to a crew of maybe 60 I remember going to see the first day of filming and it was, oh, oh my God. <laughs> remember that I'm someone who can, you know, Malvolio I wrote, learnt it, worked with a designer for two days and then performed it. 
and have performed it hundreds of times since then and learnt in the act of performance. So I have that facility with theatre, which I absolutely don't have with telly, because, yeah, 60 people from the director, the DOP, to the everyone, to the electricians, to the costume, to the makeup. And you kind of feel, I felt at times it was like watching a a boat sail away from the harbour and quite empowering in a way in that you have to let go of that. You can't be in everyone's front rooms at the time they watch it, uh, whereas you you are with an audience when they watch it and it happens just the once and it's going to happen again slightly differently the next night. And in telly, someone presses a button somewhere or now, of course, for streaming, you press a button and there it appears individually just for you. I watched Stuart Lee do one of his early morning tryouts of new material in Edinburgh and he had this fantastic comedy routine. Stuart Lee is a rather brilliant stand-up comedian. Uh, about Phoebe Waller-Bridge being the first person ever to talk directly to an audience. <laughs> Uh, it it, it was a joke because he then went on to explore how in the 80s no comedians ever looked their audience in the eye once not ever and then he he charted the slow progression of comedians slowly turning 90 degrees to catch a glimpse of the audience and then being told off by management no you're not allowed to look at the audience and then Phoebe Waller-Bridge came along and did this amazing you know ostensibly amazing form-breaking thing and it's for a theatre maker. It's it's not a form breaking thing. It's a thing that we do all the time. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that means that telly is a little bit behind theatre. Certainly, telly takes longer. You know that analogy of turning a turning an oil tanker or stopping an oil tanker. It takes a long time because there's so much material to it, and so many departments and people that need to be involved in those choices. Um, and with theatre, you can do something in a moment and learn from it in retrospect. Do you feel like it changed your theatre writing at all? Uh, I, I, when I was writing that series, I wrote a play called Beginners for the Unicorn mm. Theatre, which perhaps is the most uh, conventionally character-driven play that I've written. So I, maybe there was an influence from the television world into that. But then what happened with beginners is that, of course, the form arrived in that those characters that those adult actors play are all eight or nine years old. Um, And in the course of the play, real eight and nine-year-old children populate that stage. And in the course of the play, uh, they take over from those adult actors and those adult actors return to be the parents of those children. So if you think this character is in their late 40s, this line means that. If you think this character is is nine, it means something completely different. And, uh, and I think that's quite hard to achieve that level um, on, 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 on film in front of a camera. But I think the, the stuff I learned around structuring and plotting and character certainly had an influence on how I approached that play. The Unicorn is a brilliant theatre. It's one of my favourite theatres in London. There are kind of very few theatres that are um, for young people, for young audiences. Uh, It just shows how little young audiences are respected by, you know, the current culture. uh, Because those audiences are the future to our art form. And if we don't work fully with them and bring them into the sort of stuff that we love and and want to do so yeah young people's work is is to some degree fundamental to the future for Mm. me one of the reasons that i was really interested to speak to you for this rsc podcast is that uh obviously you write these 
very modern. I don't know if they're postmodern, but these very contemporary feeling plays. And then you have this other strand to your work that is adapting or reimagining or engaged with Shakespeare. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, uh, firstly, where that came from, what your early experiences and early impressions of Shakespeare were, and also whether you whether you view those two parts of your writing as separate in some way or whether they're just part of the same, that if you're writing experimental work, you should be doing reimaginings of Shakespeare. Ah, oh, good question. I have difficulty um, describing my work as new or modern or experimental because it always, for me, feels quite old-fashioned and I'm not comparing myself with Shakespeare, but it feels a little Shakespearean in that it, it relies almost entirely on language. Um, uh, and there is something that Shakespeare does in his plays. I mean, it's, it's referenced in his prologue to Henry V where he talks about, what is it, piecing out uh, our imperfections with your thoughts. And also, what is it, uh, think when we talk of horses that you see them. It's an invitation to the audience's imagination to understanding that this space is both this space and it's also another space. So I want to really make an audience be aware of their presence, of their existence, of the reality of their existence. Um, and as, as, as our culture becomes more competent at controlling the act of imagination through digital technical means, uh, I worry about an audience's experience becoming attenuated, weakened. Uh, um, so, so I'm writing plays first and foremost for an audience, almost secondarily for a performer. Um, I think performers are I, amazing and brilliant and essential. Um, uh, but there is another approach that I'm interested in, in a way, in terms of how acting is talked about. And it may be as well be connected to how actors were talked about um, 420 years ago. Uh, be because I don't think in Shakespeare's age there was this sort of psychological obsession. And this notion about belief, yes, I've said this before, but it's interesting that Shakespeare says, peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Um, yeah, uh, think when we talk of horses rather than believe when we talk of horses. There's no attempt to sort of, yeah, dominate um, or, or transform materially the space. There's just an invitation going out to an audience to to think these things are different to what they are. And that is super empowering for human beings. It's super empowering for and to have a, an audience of 150 or whatever doing that together it is is for me, the most important thing. Not an audience of a thousand uh, sitting back in the darkness and being given huge spectacle, but it's very much connected to what I think Shakespeare is, is that Shakespeare has an empty space and transforms our imaginations to fill that space. So, so yeah, connections to Shakespeare are ancient for me because my dad and my mum were both English teachers. My, they met at Birmingham University and my dad then went and did a sort of postgrad thing at the Shakespeare Institute. And so uh, uh, they then taught English in state schools all their lives. Uh, I went to a big old state school in uh, the South Coast that wouldn't give um, me the chance to do A-level theatre studies. And so I sort of took it not independently, but with a few other mates who wanted to do it with me. And we didn't have any timetabled lessons. And my 
yeah, my folks were very helpful in getting me through doing A-level theatre studies. And my dad, I remember, took me to see Macbeth at the RSC with an actor called Bob Peck in it. And en route to that production, he talked about Macbeth and he talked about Shakespeare. Uh, so, yeah, that's just been in the Crouch DNA, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I, have, I haven't had that sort of traditional anxiety about Shakespeare. And, and to try and bring young people into a relationship with Shakespeare feels really, really important, which is kind of where the, the I Shakespeare thing mm. began, was doing Caliban and telling the story of The Tempest from Caliban's point of view, and then doing the same with, you know, Peace Blossom and Banquo and Malvolio and Sinner the Poet. Uh, because I want an, a young audience to know those stories and also often I want them to understand those archetypes in his plays, in Shakespeare's plays, because I think those archetypes still have quite uh, an influence in how we think about being human now. Uh, so I, I, it would be a tragedy, I think, for young people not to be introduced to Shakespeare and anything we can do to introduce young people to Shakespeare uh, needs to be supported and encouraged. That's our job to bring those structures alive for young people so they can get through the sort of, yeah, the, the wall of antiquity and understand them as being stories for now. But it's also not about rewriting Shakespeare. I kind of, I, I kind of wary of that to some degree. I did a King Lear. I did, you know, for the, uh, for the education department of the RSC. And the King Lear that we did was cut, obviously, down to an hour and 20 and I set it between the seven days, between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Uh, and that wasn't, I hope, a gimmicky thing. That was about trying to release flavours in Shakespeare's play that were in there anyway. Um, but an idea of a family gathering, which is a Christmas thing, of gifts being given, which is a Christmas thing, of, of ideas around inequality and poverty uh, and homelessness, which is a Christmas thing. And it then gave a sort of lens for a young audience to understand the stuff that's already that's just there in King Lear uh, but can sometimes get swamped by other things I, I still want an audience to to know what the play was that was written you know uh, and I feel like if you want to do something radical profoundly radical of course everything is allowed it's all allowed <laughs> but I, I don't want a young audience to to somehow never get the thing itself I was reading an interview you did in 2018 where you described theatre as not a thing you can abolish. You can close the buildings, but the form would relocate. Yeah. How do you? How did you feel about that? In the was that? Did that still ring true? Has that changed? And how do you feel about where theatre goes from here? It was really horrible. The lockdown. It was really horrible. Uh, but I would like to think, like a forest fire, that often there is healthier growth after such a sort of dramatic crisis. Uh, I would like to think that people maybe have an opportunity to uh, assess what's fundamental to the form. Um, I know what's not fundamental to the form for me is uh, the digital aspect. Uh, it's complicated when people talk about digital theatre. Uh, using that word theatre and digital together is complicated for me uh, because theatre is a live form. I can't make predictions, obviously, but I, I'm prepared and aware that there may be some sort of schism that's going to take place where the bigger 
commercial, digital, technical forms will start to sort of uh, gather momentum. And I would hope that while that's happening, <laughs> as, a, as a counterbalance, there is a smaller, analog, human-scaled um, devotion to the thing that, that, that is in our communities and in our lives. That's the thing I mean about theatre will relocate. I hope that there will be a kind of recalibrating to understand work that is just for the people in the room and to support work that is just for the people in the room. I, I don't necessarily want it to be at the exclusion of anything else. I think it's a pluralistic sort of culture, uh, but theatre is for the people in the room. I see it in smaller companies. There's no correlation between quality and scale, you know, mm. uh, and money spent and quality. That that notion of capitalization of theatre terrifies me uh, because theatre doesn't need any of that. It is a dematerialized art form. Uh, and maybe, maybe if we let the other stuff just roll on ahead, that theatre in its purest form can find its followers and crack open new communities and find new audiences uh, because it's giving something that they can't get anywhere else. Please take your seats. The performance is about to resume. If you were given a choice of who to spend an interval having a drink with... <laughs> <laughs> I love this. My, this is a standard RSC interval yeah, it's good question. Man. My honey Living and mango dead, margarita. Yeah. <laughs> who would you share a honey and mango margarita? Oh, margarita? I think it would be Caliban. I think we'd have a really great time. What do you think Caliban would be drinking? Everything on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> and more. And, and I think Caliban would rip it up you know Caliban is to some degree an image of nature and a sense of joy and a sense of transgression and, and all the things that I feel theatre needs to have um, and a sense of danger and chaos and euphoria and failure uh, all those things uh, plus some Negronis and Pims and uh, he would probably not touch the homemade lemonade <laughs> he would drink me under the table uh, and I would have a very good time doing that do you think you and Caliban would make it back to the second half no no <laughs> without question no we wouldn't be allowed in I think they would. <laughs> some lovely usher would come and politely ask us to leave the building brilliant Tim <laughs> thank you so much thank you for all your time today it's been a pleasure thank you Join us next week when director Autry Banaji will be getting the drinks in for actor Lucy Ellenson. Search RSC Interval Drinks to listen to more episodes, including series one of Interval Drinks. <laughs>